So I said, all right, well, how much money do you want to put in the bank of debt? And she went and got her wallet and she happened to have, it was like after Christmas or something, she had $400. So she handed me $400 and she's like, I want to put $400 in the bank of dad. And I was like, oh, bad news. Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> bank of dad just failed. And she goes, that's okay. I took out insurance with mommy. And I, <laughs> and I was like, all right, key concept. She's got it. She understands the banking system. Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, my guest is Rob Green, a serial entrepreneur who got fed up with corporate America, so he bought a ticket to China, found a supplier of innovative pet products, and seven years ago, launched his first business on Amazon. Since then, Rob has built and sold nine FBA e-commerce brands. Rob mastered this playbook so well that he's now buying Amazon-focused e-commerce brands and optimizing these businesses for cash flow. In today's discussion, you'll learn how Rob evaluates opportunities, how he decides when it's time to sell a business, and how he brings his teenage kids into these companies and exposes them to the highs and lows of the life of an entrepreneur. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rob Green. Rob, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. I've been really excited to chat with you. We've been talking to a lot of clients in the e-commerce world, and I feel like as much as that was my world, maybe what, 10 years ago is when I sold my last e-commerce business, the world changes so quickly. And you've built multiple brands in this space specific to Amazon. But I think you just have visibility into this world of building e-commerce businesses the right way, setting them up to exit. But you're also kind of have the pulse of what's happening in the M&A market today, particularly with the e-commerce aggregators. So when we had a chance to get you on, I immediately bumped Mark Cuban from this spot. So I really appreciate you being here. <laughs> Good choice, Todd. I think this would be a lot yeah. more fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just to give us a sense of your background, I'd love to start with, you know, how did you decide, like, I, I got to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just didn't know the path and how to get started or what to start with. You know, I went the traditional route, went to a college finance degree, then got an MBA after that and worked for a bunch of Fortune 500 companies, but I was never really a great fit. I don't, I don't think of myself as a good employee. I'm, I'm a little too, bit too much. Uh, I kick too many tires <laughs> and I ruffle too many feathers, I think, to be a good employee. But I just didn't really know what to do. So I found my way into e-commerce, kind of happenstance, and uh, started doing some drop shipping, teaching myself, learning. And then that led to building brands, started building a first private label brand in 2015. And since then, I've done, let's call it a handful plus, exited three of them, sold one in 19, one in 20, one in 21, bought one. We're in current acquisition mode, trying to buy more. It's been a crazy whirlwind the last few years in e-commerce. I know we'll get into that, but you saw a lot of money flood in. And now you don't have a lot of buyers. And I've seen a lot of people trying to sell. So the whole, it's, it's done the typical ride. It's been up and down. It's been a roller coaster in our space for the last few years. I think it's so interesting the way you described it as like, I kind of wanted to be an entrepreneur. I didn't know where to start. And you're shortchanging yourself because I think you made this decision, right? You took some class. Did you, you went to China. Like you, you yeah. just decided to go and do stuff that no one else was doing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, the first business I did, I just made a decision. I found an opportunity and I said, you know what? I'm going gonna, to create a website. We're going to start doing this today. Like I called a buddy. I said, I'm doing this with or without you. You want to do it with me? Fortunately, his wife was smarter than he is. 
and talked him into doing it with me. And we started a little drop shipping business. And then I, I bought it sounds crazy when I say this now, Todd, but back in 2014, I bought an online course. And I just signed up for it, yep. started learning about making my own products. I just booked a trip to China. I said, I'm, I'm going to the largest trade yep. show in the world. It's called the Canton Fair in Guangzhou. I've been there half dozen times. It's insane. It's like 11, 12 million square feet. It's unbelievable. It lasts for two weeks. It's just crazy experience. But I went and I was like, this is exactly what I'm going to do. This is easy. Like, this is a no-brainer. We're going to figure out how to buy products. We're going to figure out how to brand them. We're going to figure out how to do all this stuff. We're going to start building brands as opposed to selling somebody else's product. And that really led me down that path. But the real big catalyst for me is I had a job. And I had corporate corporate America. And I had two young daughters. And I wanted to be able to spend my time with them. You know, we live in Phoenix. It's hotter than Hades here in the summer. So we try to get away from the summer. And with a job, it's pretty tough to do. So fortunately, once I was able to start doing this, you know, we've been gone. We leave for the entire summer. Kids get out of school. Then two days, we're out. We come back maybe two days before school starts. We avoid the entire summer, which, you know, this summer, I think it was 110 plus for I don't even know how many days straight I wasn't here. But it was uh, that was the designing. And I believe that everyone wants to design their life and it might as well design mm-hmm. a dream life. So for me, I feel like entrepreneurship is really the path and allows me to have my lifestyle and have my dream life with my family and be healthy and, and live a great life. That's great. I can envision going, I haven't been to that trade show in China, but I know the mentality that I have that, that just looks like a sea of opportunity where I think a lot of people would be like, what are you going to do there? That just looks like confusion. And so, I mean, that's, that's fantastic to make the decision to do it, find the product, put a brand on it, and then give it the distribution that you are enough to build up a company and sell it. All right. So you made that decision. You, you got the products in mind. Can you tell us a little bit about the company and, and the trajectory? Yeah. The first business I started was a dog product business. I didn't even have a dog at the time, Todd. I'm a little bit uh, ambivalent about the product <laughs> or the category. Found an opportunity. I, I still I, I, It sounds crazy now. It makes me laugh every time I think about it, but it was a little dog booster seat. It was for little dogs under 20 okay. pounds. So boost them up in the front seat so they can look out the window and see what's going on. And you can attach them to like a harness. So they're safer and then they can see around and they're not in the, on the owner's lap. We sold 40 of those per day for years and years <laughs> yeah. on Amazon, right? And so that was the first product we did was that product. I created a little brand out of that, sold that thing in 2020, partnered with another friend, created a coffee product business that, again, I don't drink coffee, Todd coffee product business to mm-hmm. make coffee, French press, cold brew. We, we did supplements that go in there. I sold that one in 2021. I bought a fitness brand, which is really one product from a friend of mine, turned that into a small fitness brand, sold that in 2019. I guess I'm, I'm really not, I, I haven't been like entirely passionate, I guess you'd say about a category or subcategory. I think sometimes people get a little clouded when they get the passion. I'd love to find something I was super excited about and all in on. But right now, you know, we've done some stuff with the mm-hmm. kids and named a brand after them arts and crafts for kids. We've done a lot of different stuff and created new products and new brands. And then the distribution channel you talked about is primarily Amazon, but we do sell Walmart, Shopify, things like that. It's fantastic. It sounds like you had some overlap there, right? So if you sold the dog product in 2020, but the fitness product in 2019, right? You've you've got some overlap. And did you ever think about, you know, uh, that dog booster seat? Do I couple that with dog collars or leashes or some service that's related to dogs? Yeah. 
Yeah, sorry, we had a bunch of products. Yeah, we had a handful of products, not just the dog yep. booster seat. That was the first one. So we had like a back seat cover for dogs, kind of seat for the car, front seat. I think back then I really didn't understand the value of building a brand that I do now. I think mm-hmm. it was more of like, I'd call it more of a combination of products, right? Underneath a brand name, yep. underneath a logo, underneath a trademark. And so it wasn't really about building a, a true brand, which is what we're trying to do now. As we focus on acquiring a business that maybe has the right branding, but doesn't understand distribution or sales and marketing. So I think I undervalued the branding back then. And that's something that I've really learned the last few years is now I want to build a proper large brand that can exit for nine figures instead of seven or eight. Man, if we had hours here, I'd love to hear, you know, really what is your definition of that, right? Because it sounds like if you've got a lot of products under a single brand that that can resonate with a single customer that you are in fact building a brand, but it sounds like you have more a bigger vision for what that could be. Can you tell me on on the dog products, you sold yeah. that business. What was like yep. what was the decision? How did that come about? Somebody approach you or you made the conscious decision we want to be out of this category? Yeah, so let me take a step back in in what I was by myself for quite a while running things, right? Typical solopreneur mm-hmm. wearing all the hats, and I realized I needed a better structure. And one thing I didn't want to do because I had okay. a couple brands at the time, I didn't want to have a team that I then when I sold a brand I lost a team member. Right? I feel like I'm going to put time and energy, mm-hmm. coaching, money, invest in my people. I want to keep them. So a friend of mine, Steve, gave me this advice. So everybody works for Solving Alpha. It's one entity in the middle. And all the employees work for mm-hmm. Solving Alpha. Each brand, each LLC, which is a brand, pays Solving Alpha to manage the brand for them. So essentially, it's brand management. It's like an agency, but they're all my own. I own all of them. So I'm not doing agency for anybody else. That allows me, I think I'd read Built to Sell at the same time, that allows me Mm -hmm. to spin off or peel off one of the brands without destroying my team, affecting all the time and energy we put in the team, and we can sell the brand by itself via an APA, not have to worry about any assets under it, just do an APA and peel it off and sell it that way. It Mm -hmm. makes it very easy. So each one is built to sell but we don't have to sell it. And that structure has really allowed me, and you asked a great question about, you know, what's the catalyst for deciding to sell a brand? Sometimes we've reached the maximum number of products. I mean, there's only so many ways to make coffee, to be honest with you. There's only so many many devices to make coffee with. At some point you're like, all right, listen, there's only so many things we can do in this category because we were very niche in that category. So I think about it that way. That was an opportunity. Maybe the opportunities in that category are too difficult. Maybe the ROI isn't uh, attractive in that category. It might be time to move on and sell that brand, pull the capital back, and then reinvest in another better opportunity. So when you make that decision to sell, you know, wh- what is the process? Have you identified buyers? Are you bringing in brokers or bankers? How does that look for you? I've done it a couple of different ways. I've used a broker twice, and then I mm-hmm. did this, the last one, the bigger one, on my own. I have advised a ton of friends with this, with selling businesses, Unpaid advice, but advice by the way, Todd. It's just a free consultations yeah. to my friends. But yeah. uh, I'm, very, I'm the highest paid unpaid free counselor to my friends. But it, I, I ran the last process on my own, so I targeted specific companies that I thought would be in the, in the market. This was during the heyday of the aggregators back in 2020 and 2021, mm-hmm. and I was extremely patient. Reached out to see if it makes sense to have a conversation. Had a conversation with a bunch of them created enough interest with a few of them that they were bidding against each other. 
So I ran my own process as a, as a traditional investment banker would. I knew the industry well enough to be able to do that and then kind of played offers against off each other. What I think is interesting is, you know, we're in a lot of transactions uh, all the time. And, you know, you have founders that say, I've got this business, I want someone to buy and I just want to walk away. And, and that's a very difficult thing to do, but you've set up a process to be able to do that, but you're also approaching the right buyers, right? Those aggregators already have the staff, they have finance, they have HR, they have marketing, they have tech. And so if they're plugging in a new brand into their engine, that makes a lot of sense to not need the people. So it does reduce, right? The type of buyer that you're going to go after, but it sounds like you were really aware of this going in. So highly strategic. I can see why if it's a very if it's a small set of buyers, you can create the competition yourself. You've had exits before. You know how to negotiate it. You know what you were selling for. All those good things. I think you know in general we always coach against doing these things yourself. Yeah. But I think you had such a high level of expertise of what you were selling and who you're selling to. I'm sure that you know you got the dollars that you deserved. I do think it's tremendous value from having somebody else negotiate on your behalf. I've seen this with a lot of my friends mm-hmm. where they'll say, hey, you know, this is where we're at. And I'll say, well, this is what I would say. And they would have trouble saying that because it's their business and they're kind of scared to say that, right? Yep. I do think there's tremendous yep. Yep. value from having somebody else negotiate on your behalf and push harder because they don't have the same fears that the uh, the owner does, especially it's a life-changing amount of money for, yep. in, in most cases. And so people get emotionally wrapped up and maybe don't have the best skill set to handle that plus negotiating the the deal of a lifetime for them. And, and I also think about it that, you know, most of the time, everybody does their first deal, their first deal, they know nothing, then they know a little bit more on their second deal, Mm -hmm. then their third deal, there's true value and expertise of somebody who's seen 100 deals, they've seen all the ways it can go sideways, there is tremendous value. If I had found somebody, Todd, that I felt could have paid for themselves, I would have definitely worked with somebody that could have paid for themselves. I just couldn't find anybody that I felt could make me more money than that they were charging from an intermediary perspective. Yeah, that's a, gosh, that's a whole area to dive into at some point in that the quality of intermediary and specialty, it's really hard to identify. And then when you do identify it, those people are expensive. So in our business, we really have to be selling businesses above $20 million in order to bring you the world-class advisor. And yes, they should be the ones negotiating, not only because they have the skill set and the knowledge and they've been there before, but the buyer who knows that guy that they're talking to across the table because they bought a business from them before or their competitors have, they know with two phone calls, they can create instant competition, right? So it really does level the playing field. I do agree with you. If, the, if it isn't a sizable transaction, then the cost of that intermediary may be too high, right? We're, we're, we're challenging ourselves to try to solve that for founders who have businesses that are going to sell under 10 million. And it's just, it's a difficult problem to solve. But I really appreciate you saying that. Uh, it's kind of core to what we believe. You put the absolute best world-class team on the field and you're going to win, right? And that, that's what we want to do for founders. Todd, I want to double click into that last piece, what you said. Because I don't think it that it's not the most expensive piece. It could be the cheapest decision you ever make in your life. And I think that framework around how people perceive it is really, really valuable for especially first time sellers. I had multiple friends 
that sold north of 20 million that did not take one piece of advice I gave them. They did not negotiate that and cost them tens of millions of dollars. And that simple yep. piece of advice to these aggregators is they sold and all of their earnout was based on a trigger. If one year from now, two years from now, we're at least at 85 or 90% of where you were the trailing 12 months, then you'll get your earnout. And my suggestion was these guys are unproven entities, unproven operators, mm-hmm. and you have no control over their performance. So when I sold, yep. I negotiated a guaranteed paid out, not uh, dependent upon a trigger. And m- most of my friends that did not do that did not receive their earnouts. Yeah. I, I mean, you're saying what happens more frequently than not when your trigger is time, right? It, it's you will pay me regardless of the performance of the business 12 months out, 24 months out, and then you're done, right? You're guaranteeing those payments as long as the businesses are solvent. But yeah, when you turn the reins over to somebody else, or even if you go to work there and you think the levers are in your hands, we have routinely heard buyers say, uh, you know what? We're going to have to hit the pause button. We're going to allocate resources to another division of the business for six months. Just hold tight. We'll get back to you. And they never get back and your numbers drop because you don't have the levers in your hand. Yes, I completely agree that your advisors can do a great job at structuring earnouts so you can believe it. And in, and in some cases, frankly, we've sold businesses to private equity groups where that earnout was even enhanced with rolled equity, right? So a, an invest a, a seller gets a big check and they decide to take a percentage of it and invest back into the business. And if you can get really aligned and understand the mission and know that that private equity firm has a great track record of making money, that is a great way to get what they call the second bite of the apple. And we, we really try to do due diligence around every one of those buyers for our founders so they can make those types of educated decisions. I know I went off on a little bit of a tangent, I really appreciate that idea of like trying to advise around earnouts and how that advice, not just there, can be, you know, the cheapest advice you get because you can literally add millions of dollars to your pocket if you take the right advice. But speaking of that, right, there are a lot of people that are not giving the right advice. I'm sure you come across that, your industry, right? Lots of people touting how I made billions of dollars on Instagram selling, you know, X, Y, and Z, right? How do you think through you know, who are the real, who are the real entrepreneurs out there in your category, who you would actually want to work with or sell to? That is really difficult to be honest with you, because I think e-commerce in general is a pretty new industry, right? So you don't have the same mm-hmm. track record you have in a lot of the offline businesses. You see, especially even when we talk just Amazon based businesses, very, very new. These were not selling five, six years ago mm-hmm. at all. If they were, they were trading at, you know, one yep. X, they were, there's nothing. And then all of a sudden you had all these first time entrepreneurs selling these businesses to finance people with a lot of experience and a lot of deal making. It really was an asymmetric information situation is what it really felt like. It really felt like a lot mm-hmm. of friends just were stuck. When I think about things is I try to find people that are aligned with my interests. You know, I've got a, a small mastermind that we get together and we're all it's a little bit different than any other mastermind in that nobody makes any money off of it. So we're all aligned to try to mm-hmm. help each other. And we all I think almost all of us have exited a bit, at least one brand and we all help each other. Mm-hmm. And that's really like my core group of like board, board of advisors, I guess you could say. We all advise each other on what we're seeing. It gives us more information in the marketplace. It allows us to kind of curate, hey, I had this great experience with 
this lawyer. I had this great experience with this due diligence firm. You know, Q of E, we use this firm for that, or we used them and it wasn't great. Don't use these guys. So I think that's the best way to do it is to try to find a group of people that really care about your success. I mean, I know it sounds kind of cheesy mm-hmm. these days, but I really think trying to find people that care about you and your success, not just out there making a buck, I think is really the critical part for me, at least. Uh, you know, you're you're speaking our talk track in that <laughs> we do this because we know how hard the entrepreneurial journey is and we want to make sure that our fellow founders get over the goal line. We want to help them finish that entrepreneurial journey. So for us, it is not for the money. We want to have them with the best possible teams to get the outcomes. In fact, I was thinking about it, right? We've got a deep, deep bench of these experts. And we do have one woman in Israel who only focuses on selling FBA businesses mm. that where the product comes out of China, right? So it gets that specific for us. And the reason she's great at it is she was an attorney that focused on companies that had entities within China. And that was that's a very specific specialty, right? So she is one of our kind of elite e-commerce investment bankers. This is super interesting. What else can you tell me about your career? You didn't just have that one exit. You're buying, you're selling. How are you thinking about, you know, building companies now for exit? Because I know you you have a kind of the special sauce there. So we are in acquisition mode now. We're reaching out. We've identified a few hundred brands that we're interested in talking to. And we're reaching out to traditional methods mm-hmm. and mailing and, and LinkedIn, things like that. And we want to have some conversations with them. I personally believe the next let's call it 18 to 24 months are a great opportunity to buy for people that have a skill set that know how to navigate the e-commerce waters, I guess you'd say, like uh, true operators. Because the word on the street is that, you know, some of these aggregators are not doing as well as they'd hope to be. And they've got some significant debt. One of them filed for bankruptcy a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago. They're going to have to liquidate some assets, most likely. There's a lot of sellers as this space has gotten more complex it's harder to make money. It's more competitive. There are more sellers in the space. Ad costs have gone up. So we try to find opportunities where we've a brand that's complementary to our skill sets. What are we great at? What are, If they're lacking the same thing, I believe that's a great opportunity for us to have a conversation. And then can we find a way to make it work? I've got one guy right now that I just messaged again yesterday that I mean, I, I definitely shouldn't reach out the way I did. I really would love to buy his brand. Hopefully, this I bought it by the time this thing goes live. Yeah. But I really want to buy his brand. And I just see so much upside in it. He doesn't make any money yeah. right now. And that's the challenge, right? And we've kind of left it at that. He had a number in his head, and he just doesn't make any profit. And so hopefully, we can come to a creative solution yeah. on how to buy it. But I have high confidence we could multiply his business very, very quickly. And so we're just trying to find opportunities where we can leverage our current skill set. And then at that point, as I said before, we we try to build it to sell. We don't have to sell it. But if we Mm -hmm. want to sell it, we have the ability. We've got, you know, 12 months of earnings behind it. We've got positive growth in the right direction. We've probably rebranded it. We've probably got more products in the pipeline. You know, we've we've got it set up for the next person to take it and go and run with it if, if that's something that they want to do. So we just want to create a situation where we've got optionality. That's the number one thing I think about. 
That's great. What I hear is like, you're going to professionalize these organizations. Not only are you going to make them profitable and cash flow and put a growth rate on them, but when you put that kind of professional wrapper of accounting and data room, right, that a buyer can come in and say, I know exactly what this business is. It isn't weeding through a bunch of unknowns. They can put a real price on it, right? So I could see how you could take those opportunities where you see the vision of where it could go and, you, you know, you put your magic on it and you could be flipping those. And I, I don't want to use the word flip like, like you're not adding a ton of value because I know you would be selling businesses. I know how that core of organization and systems in a business really adds value. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. I'm very anxious to start talking about your family and how you've introduced and you teach your kids, right? Because I have young kids. I know a lot of our listeners have kids. How do they introduce to entrepreneurship? But before I do that, is there anything else that you would want to talk about having to do with kind of building and selling companies? Yeah, I mean, I think you already touched on a really key part is financials. I can't tell you how many people we've spoken to who have maybe terrible financials or even maybe terrible grasp of their financials. I mean, rarely yep. does the second conversation, the numbers actually match the numbers we were told in the first conversation. I mean, they're not even remotely yes. close most of the time. So the biggest set of advice I would give to, and I tend to be, you know, I'm a finance guy, so I tend to be a little bit more financial oriented, but I would say anybody that is looking to sell, plan ahead. Start working on your financials mm -hmm. well ahead of selling, not the day you want to go to market, well ahead and think about, are there things that you can do? Maybe there's some easy expenses you could trim. That compounds when you're selling for a multiple. And I find it all the time. I'll give a quick yep. story on this, Todd. A buddy of mine in the mastermind, he, we used to share all our financials. And he put his financials on the screen and we were looking at him. I just looked at him. I said, wait a minute, man, you sell light, inexpensive products from China. Why is your shipping fee like 15% of your price? He goes, oh, I ship everything via air. And I said, what? He said, yeah, I don't want to deal with containers. I said, hold on a second. You sell all these items. You ship them via air all the time. And he said, yeah. I said, you're paying 10x the cost of putting in a container. You could hire a guy for 30 grand to do your few shipments a month and never have to think about it again. You would have saved, I think it was like 120 grand. And he had selling for 4x. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that was 480 yeah. right there. Just yep. into the ether. So I think getting a thought process around your financials is probably the biggest advice I can give to people who are or even considering selling is preparing those financials. Yep. And if you don't know how to do it, that's totally fine. Find somebody yes. who does. It's fantastic advice. I think it's fine to go out and start a business and you're looking for product market fit. And then you start refining your unit economics. So maybe it makes sense at the beginning to airship. Now you're looking for cost savings. And just to be really clear about what you were saying is for every dollar that you save, you're adding that to your profitability line. And when you go to sell a business, you are selling for a multiple of that profitability or EBITDA as it's called. So in that case, you're describing a four times that $1. You do it 100,000 times, it's $400,000 that can be in your pocket at exit. So um, yeah, really useful advice. And I also like, don't feel bad, right? That your financials are not in order. 
majority of sellers are not. But you give yourself a big advantage to go get that straightened out because the first time you show your numbers and they're wrong, your purchase price, the confidence and everything else you share just goes in the toilet. So um, it's great advice. I really appreciate that, Rob. Let's jump in. What I think is really exciting is that your family, you're teaching them the lifestyle, the work-life balance of entrepreneurship. You're speaking in your kids' classes. They're watching your YouTube videos. Take me through that any way you want to share it. I'm like fascinated about how you're bringing your family into teaching them how to build business. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I live and breathe it. And I think that some people think about it like a work-life balance. I think of it as a work-life integration. Right. So I've done this their whole life. They don't know any different. Right. This is just how they've grown up. I took my oldest daughter. I went to my daughter. I have two daughters. They're 15 and 13. I took my oldest daughter to China with me for nine days when she was nine, That's not awesome. even 10. And so we went to the Canton <laughs> Fair. I took her to the Canton Fair. We went and visited some factories and ate some pig's feet and tried an eyeball or two. And so she got that experience. I mean, talk about, I mean, a nine year old American kid in China. And uh, she got an eye-opening experience, let's put it that way. People would – she's blonde and people would stop <laughs> to take pictures with her. You know, can I, can I take a picture with your daughter? Yeah, especially as you get in rural China a little bit more. And so that was one experience. I try to integrate things. ChatGPT came out last year. I'll come home when I learn something. I'll put it on the big screen TV and I'll teach my wife and my kids and we'll talk about it. Hey, here's what's happening in AI. Mm-hmm. You should use this for school. Look at the research you could do with this with AI. You're going to use another tool to your toolkit. Mm-hmm. We just did this a couple of days ago this weekend, Todd, about TikTok shops. I think TikTok mm-hmm. shops are the best opportunity I've seen in e-commerce in a decade. No exaggeration. So we went through wow. what I've learned in the past few weeks is it's brand new in the U.S. in the last couple of months. So I went through and said, hey, this is the products that are selling. These are the videos that people are creating. This is how we think it works. We're starting to move on this fast. And then it's funny. My daughters had two friends sleep over this weekend. So I included them and their parents in this like teaching moment. And they gave feedback. Hey, I use TikTok for this or I use it for this. And so we try to incorporate that as much as possible. I created a brand named after my daughters a couple of years ago. So they're in the pictures. They're in the videos. They understand how it works. They'll, they understand how much things cost. I try to expose them to it. I wouldn't say they're mm-hmm. you know, diehard into it. Like They don't want to come to the office after school every day. They'd rather go play soccer or volleyball. Yeah. But they're exposed yeah. to it, and we talk about it. So they understand it. Like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Or this isn't selling well. What if you did this? They've done product research, Todd. So especially for the brand mm-hmm. that's in their name, you know, arts and crafts products, we buy typically the best seller. Somebody looks at it and breaks it down and says, hey – Rate this product on ease of use, packaging, instructions. So when they're kid-centric products, I give them to them and they mm-hmm. fill out the form. And they say, oh, dad, this is – and they're harsher than I am. They're like, just these, these instructions are terrible, dad. I don't understand what I'm supposed to do with this. It's a one-pager, black and white. I can't read it. It's in a six font. What am I going to do with that? So I just try to expose them to it and then we talk about it on a regular basis mm-hmm. because I want them to have the opportunities. You know, I, I didn't grow up that way and I want them to have those opportunities they're both getting paid by the business. So they fully fund mm-hmm. their own Roth IRAs. So they're both a few years into fully funding their Roth IRAs with their earned income from, from being employees. So that's a great opportunity, I think, for people to try to set them up for that. Uh, though they have, We talk about investing with them. So we try to go through the whole gamut of what they can and can't do and how they can learn about it. It's taught them the value of a dollar, I think. They do not like spending mm-hmm. their own money, Todd. I have 15 and 13-year-old daughters, and they do not <laughs> want to spend money. 
Okay. They're like, oh, I want to, I want to save it. I want to invest it. I want to have that money, make money for me. Oh, that's great. The word exposure, right? I think that that's what it's about. You don't have to push them or force them into it, but just share what this career path could be like. And it sounds like they're embracing it, right? They're understanding the value of money and, and doing product research and, and seeing revenue come in. Can you tell the story about when your daughter realizes that, hey, the, the business might not survive and how she decided to protect her revenue? Yeah. So this is a, there's a, a great book called How an Economy Grows and how it crashes. I got to remember that it's, it's a, an economist author. It's written though in a, almost like a, a parable style, but it's with cartoon characters. Mm -hmm. And so I read it with my daughter. Yep. I think she was nine or 10 at the time. And it's great. It starts with three guys on an island. They're each catching one fish a day. And one guy says, I'm going to take a day off to build a fishing pole so I can catch two fish a day. Right. And then it builds out yep. a whole multi-island economy from throughout the book. And it teaches key concepts in economics and finance. And so I created a little game called Bank of Dad. And I said, all right, I want to teach you interest rates. So why don't you tell me what kind of a fair interest rate? And my daughter said 10%. I think, I think it was like a one, you know, <laughs> half of 1% at banks back yeah. then. And I said, 10 seems a yeah. little heavy. Well, we need, a, we need a time component. And she said, uh, per month. And I was like, wow, okay, 10% <laughs> a month's a little hefty. But it'll be fast. We'll get more feedback loops. We'll get more iterations so she can learn faster. It was my thinking. So I said, all right, well, how much do you want to, okay. money do you want to put in the bank of debt? And she went and got her wallet and she happened to have, it was like after Christmas or something, she had $400. So she handed me $400 and she's like, I want to put $400 in the bank of debt. And I was like, oh, bad news. Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> bank of debt just failed. And she goes, that's okay. I took out insurance with mommy. And I, <laughs> and I was like, all right, key concept. She's got it. She understands the banking system. So we, she made $40 that month. She made $40 that month and her younger sister wanted in on the game. So now I'm running bank and yep. dad with two kids that are giving me everything they've got in their wallet because it's a 10% per month. Yeah. I mean, my friends tried to get in yeah. on it too, but I, was, I didn't offer it to them. Uh, <laughs> so they were making this money and I said, all right, well, they've got to understand that money just doesn't go up. Sometimes you lose money. Yep. So I've got to incorporate risk. What I did added to the game was at the end of the month, I would flip a coin and they would call it. If they got it correct, they would get 15%. But if they got it wrong, they lost 5%. I needed to incorporate oh, wow. risk into the concept of the game so that they could understand like, hey, it doesn't always go up. I'm going to make investments and I'm going to lose money sometimes. But overall, the expected value is positive. So this is still a good investment for me to make. Oh, I just, I love it. I, I think it's just brilliant that your daughter, when, when you tried to scam her and say the bank went under, yeah, that she I, bought insurance from mom. That was fantastic. Yeah. I love it. Rob, um, this is this has been awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. This has been awesome. I really enjoyed the advice around building companies for exit and your your magic in selling businesses and then particularly what, how you're teaching your daughter's entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Todd, thanks for having me. I love talking about this stuff. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.